The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. If you are dealing with serious addiction to opiates, heroin, or something else, you know what a toll it takes on your life and the lives of those you love and who love you. This is A Man in Recovery Radio, from dope to hope. You'll hear from host Tim Ryan about his long journey from a winning life to losing nearly everything he had, including his 20-year-old son. All from addiction. Now, Tim has a purpose to educate others about the devastating effects of addiction and how if you are one of the millions of people who have lives that have been affected, you can turn things around today. Now, here is Tim Ryan. Good morning, Tim Ryan, Man in Recovery Radio, taking people from dope to hope. Hope everybody had a great holiday. Um, Have a very special guest today, a a dear friend of mine, Dr. Kathleen Burke. Uh, Dr. Burke and I actually met damn near three years ago when I had uh, got out of prison and started getting involved with what I do, and she was uh, doing advocacy work at the time, and uh, (laughs) we didn't see eye to eye on everything, but uh, actually today I'm I'm honored that... uh, Kathleen works with Banyan Treatment Center. Uh, She does community relations for our Chicago facility, but brings a plethora of information to the table. Kathleen, how are you today? I'm great, Tim. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, what's going on in Kathleen's world? Tell us a little bit about your background, and and you have a Ph.D. in education and substance abuse. Yes, I do. So um, my background, first of all, I've been in healthcare and the field since my the beginning of my career. I uh, was in health administration for 15 years and decided that I wanted to do more education than uh, hospital administration. So I ended up at the Museum of Science and Industry on a grant for about AIDS, and it was all about educating the community about the up-and-coming epidemic of AIDS. And so we spent many uh, long days thinking about how to best communicate the content about what AIDS was, how would people understand it, how to prevent AIDS. And so I think it's very much um, relevant to what I do today, which is help people prevent becoming addicted to opioids and other substances. So after that, I was um, CEO of the Robert Crown Center for Health Education for eight and a half years. Tell us a little bit about what Robert Crown does. Robert Crown is the oldest and largest health education center in the country. It works with schools and educates children in middle school through uh, first grade about high-risk behaviors. Like, um, we teach kids about how to take care of their bodies. We teach them, we taught them about um, um, uh, their puberty education was a big one. And we taught uh, drug prevention. And so while I was there... um, the substance abuse area started to expand because of the heroin epidemic. And the heroin epidemic hit uh, one of our um, community members very hard. His 
uh, grandson died of a heroin overdose. And he came to us and said, I want to prevent this disease. I don't want to wait until somebody is already addicted. I want to help people before they become addicted to heroin. And so we worked uh, to develop the first curriculum in heroin prevention for middle schools and high school. And I, was, I became completely immersed in the fact that there was a whole uh, generation of young people in their 20s dying of a disease and nobody was paying any attention to it. Nobody was thinking about how to best prevent it, how to teach kids um, not to take those types of risks. Our kids are going to take risks. It's developmentally, they're supposed to. Would, would be taking a risk, setting up a ramp and getting on my bike and jumping off that five-foot ramp. Yeah, that's, what, that's what we did. Kids don't do things like that anymore. I was watching a video on Facebook from kids in the 70s and 80s, and we didn't wear a helmet. We didn't have wear seat belts in cars. But, you know, all these things are... I wouldn't ever let, well, when my son Nicholas was hit by a, a car skateboarding at six years old, thank God he had a helmet on or it would have killed him. But, um, you know, kids are definitely in a high-risk behavior. I was. Well, you have to watch um, because kids who are in high-risk behaviors who like that adrenaline rush, I mean, I, my son was into sports, yeah. so he loved that um, competitive spirit and um, loved to take chances, you know, surfing, I believe. Sure, you, um, yeah. Um, what do you do? Barefoot water skiing. I skydive. I have over 500 skydives. I liked fast cars, fast motorcycles. I lived in the fast lane. Yes. Live fast, die young was my motto, and now I want to live to be old and, and enjoy my, my life and my children and all that good stuff. So. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting that adrenaline push, and it's taking the right choices, right. Doing, being in the right path so that you don't become sick, and um, that's what we try and teach parents. So you left Robert Crown and had your own, and you still have your own company. Yes, Strategic Prevention. Strategic Prevention. What are some of the things Strategic Prevention does? Well, I, um, I moved from prevention into a more harm reduction area. So I understood the education of people prior to being addicted, and now I was able to work with Will County and educate the police officers uh, about um, harm prevention, meaning we taught them how to use naloxone in the field. Um, so all of the Will County Police Departments have been trained, their trainers, so that they can deliver naloxone if they get a call. So Will County is a suburb of Chicago. It sits below DuPage County, where we, where actually our office is, is in Naperville, Illinois, and part of Naperville is DuPage County, part of it's Will County. But you know, you are you and a number of other individuals were very key in getting naloxone, or better known as Narcan, the opiate reversal drug, not only in the hands of, of parents and addicts, but in the hands of law enforcement. And to be able to go in and train an entire county, I think Will County has 32 different towns, and, and get Narcan in all those hands is huge because I, I know a number of lives have been saved. Um, there was just an article, Will County's overdose death rates are up 42% from last year. I would say it's much higher than that. I'd say it's much higher everywhere because a lot of counties nationwide consider an opiate overdose heroin only. So if it's mixed with benzos or other things, they're calling it an accidental death, whatever, that's right. By no fault of their own, but you know, we, we don't have an epidemic. we got a pandemic going on. And 
Then, you know, with, with what I do at Banyan, I'm the chief marketing officer for Banyan Treatment Center, and we have a facility in Pompano Beach, Florida, Detox and Stewart. We have our Naperville, Illinois location and one out in Boston, Massachusetts. We were looking for a community relations person, and, and Suzette, our executive clinical director, and I were talking, like, what about Kathleen? And, and here you are now, and... Man, it's exciting with what we're doing today. And you have a number of events that you get invited to. You've got one coming up this weekend, right? Yes, I do. What do you have going on there? So this weekend, they're going to have the Opioid Abuse and Modern Medicine Addressing the Chicagoland Opioid Abuse Epidemic uh, at Rush University. So I am friends with the folks at Rush who work in addiction um, and the... Uh, Rush University's Women's Board is sponsoring the Center for Compulsive Behavior and Addiction, uh, which is run by Celeste uh, Napier. Uh, we're going to be offering a panel discussion about opioid abuse and what it entails. And I am very honored to be part of this panel uh, where I will be discussing the social consequences of opioid abuse, what happens in the family, in the community the police, the politics, and the policy, you know, the grassroots things right. that are going on. Um, I will be on the panel with some really terrific people. Uh, Who are some of those terrific people you'll be on with? Well, Dr. Napier is going to be talking about um, pain control versus euphoria for opioid. She was part of the group that helped us put our curriculum together when I was at Robert Crown because she studies the adolescent brain on opioids and methamphetamine and other substances. She's a phenomenal speaker and she's in their department of psychiatry. Then we're going to have Dr. Young who's going to talk about pain management. Now we know that pain is one of the reasons that we see addiction developing in opioids, that someone has some kind of pain, they take uh, Oxycontin or Vicodin for a period of time, and before you know it, their body is craving it and they become addicted to that substance. We're also going to have Dr. Lim from the emergency room and he's going to talk about the consequences of overdosing, what happens when someone really does overdose, and how does that person come back from uh, an overdose, which is pretty serious. We think just because we give someone naloxone and they wake up that the worst is over. And well, it's not. well, you know, and, and I'm going to stop you there because one of the things I would like to see happen is we, I can remember there was an organization that w was instrumental in getting naloxone, you know, in all the pharmacies and in uh, getting it out there. But I had talked to this individual two years ago and I said, great, it, it saves a life, but what do we do after that? That's exactly right. And, and what's happening too is I'm, I'm a guy that overdosed eight times and I would wake up in the hospital, I would get clarity and I'd pull the IVs out and I'd check myself out. I would like to see, and it's going to take time to get, to get a law enacted in Illinois to where if someone is brought to the hospital due to an overdose, they're remanded to treatment on the spot. No questions asked, um, or we put them in jail until we can get a bed or give them an option, but then we get into Illinois broke, there's you know waiting lists to get into treatment, but we're not treating opiate addiction as a disease. We're treating it as willpower. You made a choice. Yes, I, I made a choice to pick up an opiate for whatever reason. Then I unleashed a monster and Pandora's box was opened. I needed to go to prison to be sat down 
to have the clarity to to lose everything to say, all right, I want help. You know, it's last night I had dinner with Shannon, my former wife, and and we were talking about everything, and, and we're we're best friends. And I I said, Shannon, what what could I have done different in our marriage? She said, Tim. You tried so hard to get sober, and you'd get bits and pieces, but you constantly went back. She said, you didn't. Your pain threshold was so friggin' high that you you would automatically go back to, well, it'll be different this time. Instead of taking those efforts and putting it into some type of recovery program, you needed to go to prison. So what we're trying to do today is take all these variables of my life, of Kathleen's experience, Suzette from a clinical side, and everyone else out here. I mean, now, when I first started, there was 120 deaths a day. Then last year, it was 129. Uh, now it's supposed to be about 144 nationwide. I still think it's much higher than that. I was at a funeral on Saturday up in Crystal Lake, Illinois, um, and there was three other mothers that were there, and I buried all their kids this past year. You know, it's... Uh, I, I think it's terrifying. It, it that is. We have, a, again, a whole generation of kids that are dying before they even get a chance to have a life. Yeah. They're, we're not launching them into um, healthy career paths. They're not able to experience the American dream that we all talk about because of their addiction and their illness. My passion... And one of the reasons that I work in this field, particularly now in treatment, is because we didn't know a lot about uh, opioids and what they did to the brain. We didn't understand that um, substance abuse and misuse is addiction is a medical disease. But we do now. And we need to change the way we treat it. We need to treat it like a medical disease. We need to stop having the insurance companies determine how many days a person is eligible for treatment. When, in fact, we know that standard practice is not best practice. Best practice is an extended period of time for people to get well so that we can help people get back on their feet out in the community and start a life where they've had no life before yeah, and move from there. And I agree. And it's not just the addicts that are, are lost. It's the families, Kathleen. And the support groups and everything we do some of the families are, are sicker than the addict and, and they're enabling and, and they're helping this disease flourish and they're helping kill their own kids or husbands or wives without even knowing they're doing it because as a mother or a father, husband, wife, brother and sister, we, we get our emotions involved. And when I work with families, the first thing I do is say you have to take your emotions out. Well, that's a lot easier said than done. When your your child is calling and saying, I love you, I, I, I need $20, I haven't eaten, whatever the damn variable is, and it, it, it's tough, but, you know, we just, uh, we're learning, but I, I think this year, unfortunately, is going to be the worst year. The, the fentanyl, the car fentanyl, everything else that is happening out there, it's not getting any better. It's not getting any better. Well, what we forget is that there's a whole industry around drugs and supplying drugs. And that industry and the folks that are running it have an interest in increasing demand. We need to stop helping kids move in that direction. We need to, to educate the medical community so that they do not 
prescribe as many pain pills to our um, families so that they do not allow people to be on pain medication when they're adolescents for a long period of time so that we're smart about our medical care and we ask questions and we don't say to doctors, do what you think is best, but rather we become educated as a family member, as an individual in the community and know what's best for our child and our family. I, I absolutely agree. This is Tim Ryan on A Man in Recovery Radio with my guest, Dr. Kathleen Burke. We're going to take a quick break. If you want to call in, you're welcome to call in at uh, 866-472-5791. We will be back in a few minutes. Tim Ryan, Man in Recovery Radio. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to a man in recovery radio from dope to hope featuring host tim ryan to reach tim by mail please use t ryan at amirf.org that's t ryan at amirf.org now back to a man in recovery radio man in recovery radio tim ryan taking people from dope to hope helping one addict at a time first and foremost if if you got a loved one struggling out there you don't know where to turn to um you can go to us a man of recovery foundation basically we guide and direct people into treatment whether they have good insurance no insurance state insurance you can check us out on the web at www.amirfisinfrank.org um, I also am the Chief Marketing Officer for Banyan Treatment Center out of Pompano Beach, Florida. We're a JACO accredited treatment center. You can check us out at uh, Banyan, B-A-N-Y-A-N, treatmentcenter.com or at 844-4-BANYAN. But, you know, if you're struggling, you got questions, there's never any dumb question. Pick up the phone and call, or you can email me at T-R-Y-A-N at A-M-I-R-F as in Frank, dot org. We're back with Dr. Kathleen Burke. Kathleen, so your, your event coming up at Rush University Medical Center, when is that? It's going to be this Saturday, uh, January 14th from 9 to 12. It's going to be in a serial conference center, you can go to uh, Rush's website and just click in and register. It's not hard. It's um, going to be a very good conversation from the medical world. 
because so go to rush dot com and the women's board is sponsoring it so there will be an announcement in the center for compulsive behavior that you know tim one of the things that i've spent my career doing is helping people understand complex things and one of the ways that i do that is i work along with the medical people, the people in the field, to um, understand what's coming out of the laboratories and the science, to get it to the street as right. fast as possible. And you also are helping people understand this this epidemic in major ways. And you have a conference coming up, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, my partner, Danny Langlos, who's the chief of police in Dixon, Illinois, and we started the second program in the country where opiate addicts can walk into the police station and ask for help in a little over... Uh, Almost coming up on a year and a half, we've put upwards of 145 people into treatment. But we have an event coming up at the uh, University of Chicago Urban Labs. It's law enforcement's effort to combat the heroin epidemic involving access to substances uh, and substance abuse treatment. That is going to be at the Urban Labs office, 33 North LaSalle Street. Uh, That will be Friday, January 27th. Um, you can shoot me an email, but they've, they've got a plethora of, of solid people there uh, doing some uh, panel discussions. And it's really interesting working with law enforcement today um, and helping law enforcement to understand this. Actually, next week on the 17th and 18th, I'm going to Michigan with Danny, and, and we're training a number of state and uh, local police officers on how to work with opiate addicts, because we're getting some programs started out there. We're working with three other towns in Will County right now, and when you have law officers saying, look, you know, we don't know how to help these people. We want to help them. That's where we come in, and uh, this is what we do. This is is what we do, and you know, I'm going to go back to my dinner with Shannon last night, and you know, it's funny. People think I've got this this kick-ass life, which I do. But you know, you work for Banyan, you run a foundation. I deal with death almost on a daily basis. My life is not a, a bag of red roses; it's a bag of black roses. I would not wish what I do on anyone, um, and I had to go through my journey to get where I'm at today, but you know, Saturday was my 103rd funeral I've attended in two, a little over two years. And when you walk into a funeral and there's three other parents there, and I've buried all their children in the past year, it's heart-wrenching, but one of the mothers reached out and said, Tim, I wanna get involved, how can I help? And we need to be a big, loud voice um, and, and keep doing more. What are, what are some of your thoughts, Kathleen, on, on what, are, what are we missing in the system altogether? Actually, we're missing collaboration. There is a lot of people out there who are doing absolutely outstanding work. And until we start working together to change the overall system, to connect the pieces that are not connected right now, we're only going to be doing things in a piecemeal way. So... One of the reasons that I like the work I do is because I've had an opportunity to work in prevention. I've had an opportunity to work in harm reduction. I've had an opportunity to work in treatment. And so I can see the whole continuum and know where some gaps are. We need to pull together in this country and address opioid abuse and substance abuse as a medical disease from the beginning all the way around till someone has a healthy life again and is able to maintain sobriety from that point on. We piecemeal it and people fight against each other. 
And one of the reasons people fight against each other is because there are limited resources, okay? Whenever you have limited resources, people need to, um, they want those resources. And so it would be much more effective if we combined our resources because we'd get more done. And I think a man in recovery is an excellent example of being out there. The, the programs we're doing with the police departments would not be possible if there was not a group of volunteers who are willing to help the folks who come in for treatment get into treatment. And so we forget that uh, there is a whole army of people out there who are helping people regain their lives and be sober. You know, and, and there is, but you talked about something, and, and we've talked about this since it started. we got to collaborate and come together. The, the fact of the line is that's never going to happen. Why? Because there's too many egos out there. Too many people... Well, for whatever reason someone gets into this, it's not, a, oh, well, you made the newspaper and I didn't, or, or you did this. Um, it's about helping, but some people don't check their values and their morals on why they're doing this. And what's interesting, I, I had a couple gentlemen fly in from a place called Salvation Oaks out in uh, South Carolina where we send a lot of people to, and I was doing an event up in Crystal Lake, and we had... Banyan Treatment Center there. We had Rosecrans. We had Gateway there. And I had all these organizations speak. And Brian comes up to me and said, I've, I've never seen this. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I have never seen a forum to where you're working with all these other treatment centers. I mean, in Naperville, we do a lot of work with uh, Linden Oaks, um, Good Samaritan Hospital. We have to work together. And it's been hard pulling these things together. But um, I need to know where I can get people in, and yeah, I work for Banyan, but everyone's not a fit for Banyan. It's it's as simple as that, and I just had a, another kid with severe mental health issues, so I, I referred him to a friend of mine, Tom Mazel, who who's the best in, in the business. Tom knows where to go with this guy and found a place for him in Tennessee. Um, I don't get paid to do this. It, it's the right thing to do, but you know... That's why I'm I'm blessed. I've I've got a I, I live a twelve step base life program and and uh, you know I try to keep my ego out of this. This has nothing to do with ego. It's just a fact of the matter. But we keep pushing on. And when you get a message from I got a message from a mother in Lake Zurich, Illinois, uh, about a week ago saying, Tim, I just want to thank you. My son's two years sober, um, and this was a kid that had couldn't couldn't stay sober two minutes. And he's doing well. He's getting married. He's got a career. That's why I do what I do. You know, addiction is a complex disease. Uh, it is very complex. So you can't apply a cookie-cutter approach and have one standard approach for every person. And that's a, a fallacy. And that's why I educate people. <clears throat> because we need to understand how addiction occurs. We need to understand it's a brain disease. We need to understand there's often underlying mental health issues that are also complicating it. We need to understand the genetics. There is genetics involved. If people come from families where there is addiction, they have a higher probability of having an addiction themselves. And we need to help kids understand that when they're young, before they go down that path, when they're uh, drinking and drugging at the parties. And it, it, absolutely. I mean, I, I'll take myself. I was adopted. I guarantee you my biological mother or father struggled with substance abuse. My little brother and sister, a three-quarter Chippewa Indian, they both struggled. They found their biological parents. The mother was an alcoholic, had 10 other kids, gave birth to Katie and Kevin, intoxicated. Um, but then I look at, you know, I'm the guy that struggled with learning disabilities, some ADD, dyslexia, 
So my self-esteem was down when I was a 14-year-old freshman in high school and all the slower or the stupid classes. And what soothed me? Alcohol and drugs. I didn't have the coping skills. And, and what has transpired from the 70s to now is unbelievable. And, and that's some of the things we are. We are just a source of information. You need a sober home. You need a therapist. You need this. I can put a post on Facebook and have referrals in 10 minutes from all over the United States of America. And it's not, a, oh, this is mine or yours. I just want people to get the help. But then you get the families that uh, they don't listen. Right. They don't listen. And then, God forbid, here's one of the worst things that happens is, is when someone does pass on, they want to blame the treatment center. They want to blame everyone and it is a disease. The disease is what got them. And people need to have an understanding. If and when you send a loved one to treatment, that is not the end-all solution. Treatment is just the beginning. Living a life of recovery is a journey. It is a lifelong journey. And three weeks in treatment is not long enough. You know, with Banyan, we can keep people up to 90 days. But that's still not long enough. They need to get into structured sober living facilities i recommend a minimum of a year in a structured living home uh whether it's uh you, you attend a 12-step based program a christian based refuge recovery which is buddhist based smart recovery you see a therapist you meet with a, a coach a life coach whatever works for you do it but you got to be you got to be honest with yourself and that's one thing i could never do well, I think what's interesting is that we forget that um, addiction is a brain disease. Just like um, if you're insulin and you were a diabetic, the disease doesn't get better because you're taking insulin. You're maintaining your health because of the insulin you're taking. You maintain your health when you have heart disease by exercising and by eating right. The disease is there, right? But you need to make it manage it. And so when we're talking about addiction. Once a person becomes addi addicted to a substance, there are changes in their brain, and that needs to be managed the rest of their life. So there's no such thing as getting out of treatment and you're all better. There's, there's no such thing as even getting out of treatment and maintaining sobriety for a year. Oh, you don't have to worry anymore. You're fine, right? No, right. that's not true. Well, and, and I see a lot of people, Kathleen, say they were an opiate addict, whether it's heroin, it's pain pills. They might not be doing those, but they're still drinking or smoking weed, and they'll maintain for a little bit. But once you, and believe me, I've done every drug under the sun, you will ultimately gravitate back towards your drug of choice, and that's when most people die. Most of the opiate addicts that die are not your daily users, unless they get a batch of fentanyl-laced heroin. It is the people that are coming out of jail, county jails, or prison the people that are coming out of treatment, the people that had some type of recovery, whether it was long-term or short-term, and went back to using. When my son died, he had been in jail for 45 days, seven days out of jail. He, in about an hour's time, had snorted two bags of heroin and ate a bar of Xanax, and that's what killed him. So, you know, your tolerance drops very quickly, and, you know, the criminal aspect, too, because... I'm one of the very few, I would say, opiate addicts that, that still worked and managed. And I had a family and I was a recruiter, so I, I could make quick cash. 
but a lot of people turn to a life of crime or selling their bodies, male and female, getting into the sex trade, and, and it's just blowing up the shoplifting, the, the home invasions, the burglary, the armed robberies, and these people would in a million years would have never done these things, but the pull of an opiate is so strong. I mean, towards prior to me going to prison, I was staking out a bank. I was ready to go rob a bank, guns ablazing, because I was just so desperate and, and delusional. I was completely delusional, and, and that's where this disease takes you. Absolutely, and what's really interesting when I work with the police departments is that they know that crime rates are going to go down if we start treating addiction as a disease, that putting people in jail because of an addiction does not solve the problem. And in fact, as you said, increases the chances of death when they get out yep. because there's no treatment that has been offered them for that period of time when they're not using. You can't just stop cold turkey and not deal with the influences that have gotten you to the point where you are at that point. Then. You bring up a wonderful point because I use the analogy, if you sober up a horse thief, what do you have? You have a sober horse thief. I had a kid call me last night that had been through our treatment center and he said, you know, I'm sober, but I'm, I'm still stealing, I'm robbing things. And I said, are you working a recovery program? He said, no. I said, there's your problem because you're not living a life of honesty, open-mindedness and willingness. And I, I use that analogy with them. So you take away the drug. The drugs were my solution to my problems, but you take those away. I still had all the problems, which were all created by my, my thinking. I had to change every aspect of my thinking. And for me, I have no credentials. I have 30 years of street credit. But I am surrounded by people like Dr. Kathleen Burke, by Suzette Papadakis. I get to work with some of the smartest people in the industry, and the greatest thing is I get to milk them. I get to suck information out of them. It doesn't make me a, a clinician, but it gives me more knowledge. Knowledge is power in directing people as quickly as I can into the right resources to get the best help is what it's all about. That's what we're trying to do here. That's exactly right, and um, so much has changed. I, I want to make people aware that we're learning things all the time about the brain and about addiction and what best paths people should take for um, recovery and to stay in recovery. And um, I think the idea that support systems are so needed out there, um, the support groups, Tim, that you run, the support groups are the linkage back into the real world, so to speak, that you need to be managing the entry back. Well, you, you know what's really interesting, Kathleen? When I started my support group, um, it, it very quickly morphed into a group where I have the families come with the addict at the same time. And we started this almost three years ago. Nobody did this. I, we were the first ones to start this. But now I am seeing this morphing nationwide. And I don't need credit. I could care less about the credit but I'm glad that people are catching on. And, and we have everyone together and then you split it and, and the families are learning the same way I learn. I learn from people that have got 15, 20, 30 years sober and they mentor me or sponsor, whatever you wanna call it. But I have families now, I have parents that have been coming to our support groups for three years 
that are helping the new parent, that walks in, that are scared, that, that think they're doing, it's our fault. And as my father said when I got out of treatment in 1990 from Parkside Lodge in Mondelein, he said, Tim, I learned I didn't cause your disease. I can't cure it and I can't control it. And he said, I'm not going to contribute to it either. So you go to your meetings and do what you need to do. But the day you start drinking and using drugs, you're out of the house. And to be able to go down to Florida over the uh, past couple weeks with my 15-year-old daughter and spend 10 days at my parents' house, what a gift, only because of recovery. And the weird things I look at at being an addict is walking by my dad's bedroom and seeing his wallet laying on the counter. Um, those were things he would have hid from me. I, I walked into the house and I said, hey, Dad, uh, your vodka bottle you don't have to worry about me drinking it and filling it up with water, The what I did last time I was down here. And he said, well, I don't even drink vodka anymore, but yeah, I had all these people over for a dinner party and I'm making them cocktails and you filled my whole gallon of vodka up with water. <laughs> but that's what the disease of addiction does, you know. Um, you know, speaking of families, as a family member, um, as a family unit who had the disease in their family, and when when that um, happened. I didn't know who to talk to, who to talk to, where to go. And I'm in the industry. I'm in, you know, hospitals. Good. Well, let's hold that thought because you're someone that was in the industry and didn't know where to turn with, with this hitting your own home, with your own child. This is Tim Ryan with Man and Recovery Radio, taking people from dope to hope. We will be back after a short break. Talk to you in a few. As we age, our health can decline. For some, it's a slow, even process, while for others, it can happen at a much faster rate. The health decline can start in people as young as their 30s. Did you know a lot of age-related diseases can be prevented, reversed, or eliminated? It's true. You'll find out more every week on Healthy Aging with Dr. Denise Bogard. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. It's your life. Keep it going well. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. listening to a man in recovery radio from dope to hope featuring host tim ryan to reach tim by mail please use t ryan at amirf.org that's t ryan at amirf.org now back to a man in recovery radio tim ryan man in recovery radio taking people from dope to hope with my guest dr kathleen burke you know, we're talking about uh, what I talk about every day, addiction, substance abuse, alcoholism. It doesn't matter. You know, I, I, I hit a lot on the opiates and the heroin epidemic, but if you have a family member struggling with alcohol, cocaine, hallucinogenics, crystal methamphetamine, K2, pain pills, heroin, benzodiazepines, we're here to help. If you need help, check out www.amirf.org. 
or you can check out BanyanTreatmentCenter.com or BanyanChicago.com. We are here to help. So when we left, you were talking, Kathleen, about not knowing where to go for help. Right. I um, Give us a little backstory. So what was the issue? So um, it turned out that um, my family, my um, son and daughter-in-law had an addiction to um, pain pills. And my son was also Xanax. And um, I didn't know this. I didn't know. They lived in Florida. I didn't know what was going on. And they um, eventually I got them because, you know, this was 2008 when the economy was bad. They both lost their jobs. They lost their house. They lost everything. And I finally got them to come home um, so I could help. And when I figured I had every reason in the world to think, oh, it must, it must be a brain disease. It must be something medical that's going on. It couldn't possibly be a substance problem. And so I looked everywhere but straight at it until um, my son ended up in the hospital because he withdrew from Xanax cold turkey. He just went wow. off it because he didn't have it anymore and ended up in the ICU um, for days because of that. And I'll never forget looking at him and seeing how sick he was from a pill that people give out continually for anxiety. And so, yes, anxiety was one of his issues, but he was also from a family of um, addiction. There's alcoholism and drug abuse on both our, his father's and my side. And so when he ended up in the hospital, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to call. I didn't know what treatment was. I didn't know how to get him into treatment. Um, his, um, I didn't know how to access services. They had no jobs. They had no money. So that was the big thing. They right. go on a waiting list forever. <clears throat> when you get people out and the crisis has passed, nobody wants to go into treatment. Bam. You, you've got a 24, 48, maybe a 72-hour window to get someone in. When someone calls, we need to get them in. And, and those are things that Man Recovery Foundation, myself personally, we, we've learned to do is – I don't say manipulate the system. I know how to maneuver the system to where we can find beds. I have places out of state, but on the flip side, all these cost money. You know, in Illinois, they have a new law. You have to have state insurance this year to get into treatment. But you're going to tell a heroin addict or a cocaine addict that you got to go down to the DHS office and fill out this paperwork. They're not going to do it. Um, and we're blessed that there's some detoxes that people can get into and they'll help them do that right away. And we've got places out of state that our foundation will assist with payment. But on the flip side, we need funds to help make this happen. You know, um, I was blessed, Kathleen. I, I got back from Florida and I went to my office, my other office on Saturday, and I have $6,000 oh in donation my, checks. Um, we, we have a grant from the city of Naperville for, yes. for $20,000, $21,000. And we've worked diligently and, and thousands of hours to make these things happen. If you want to help, figure out how to raise funds and, and allocate it towards helping the addicts. And on our break, we had spoke. Um, one thing that is lacking is sober homes. Yes, and a lot of communities don't want those people living next door to them. But they'll have a child molester. They won't have people that are trying to turn their lives around Um you know, that's a big aspect because people get out of treatment, they burn the families, they have nowhere to go, and most of the sober homes are in, in the hood in Chicago. 
it's not a good environment for someone that is fragile, stable, trying to get sober, and they're walking by the corner, rocks and blows, hey, I'll give you a freebie, you know. So we need to have more communities open their doors or or more, how's the word, philanthropists? Philanthropists. Philanthropists, whatever it is, you know, buy some houses and donate them so we can give people the opportunities here to grasp this gift. I'd like to, I want to make a comparison to when people um, go to college and they get into fraternities and sororities and regardless of the bad behavior that goes on there, the collegiality that is created for people who are frightened, who are in a new place, in a new environment. When someone is coming out of treatment and they are extremely fragile and they want to be surrounded by people who are also working to stay sober. They don't want to be around people who don't have the same problems that they have. Right. People who don't understand it, who think that they can drink again or think that they can be in a house of people who are using and not use. And so sober homes provide the support systems that people need. They provide the active um, uh, um, 12-step programs that they're going to on a regular basis. It provides uh, a structure of living until people are comfortable living on their own again. It provides a family. I think the family structure is what's really important. People to rely on who've been there, who understand and support them. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. But what else I tell people struggling with substance abuse is when you are getting into recovery, I look at my son, Nick, you know, when he was 18, 19, 20, 15, 16, going to treatment, he didn't give it a shot. He didn't want to hang out with the older people and he would gravitate back to his friends and white knuckle it and eventually smoke a blunt and, well, maybe I can have a few beers the next thing he's doing pills or heroin again. But as I tell people that are trying to get sober, Man, when you go to these recovery meetings, whatever form or facet they are, say there's 30 people. 10 people are on total bullshit right out of the gate. 10 people are on the fence, but 10 are really plugged in. Hang around the people that are plugged in. Hang around the winners. If you have six guys or six ladies that are sober and they're all hanging around people that are three months sober, your chances are slim to none. But if you're hanging around people that are four, 10, 20 years sober, Man, the door's open, and, and that's why I was always successful in business, and I'm the guy with uh, you know, the 1.4 grade average and got the 11 on my ACT because I surrounded myself with positive people. I always had good mentors in life, and uh, I also could wear the mask. Nobody knew what I was up to except my wife, um, but you, know, you hang around the winners, good things are going to happen. You hang around garbage, garbage is going to happen. Well, and it's really hard for people who are trying to get their lives back together when they need to get jobs and yeah. get back out into um, the community because you, you, most likely you have a felony. You have some type of um, uh, engagement with the law enforcement, and that's going to go right up against your ability to get another job. Your confidence is shot. You don't feel like you are bringing back whatever you were trained in. If you were trained in anything, we know that many of our heroin um, addicts start when they're adolescents. So when they're adolescents, they stop developing. They stop growing. They haven't even launched their life into adulthood. Yeah, I mean, it takes until you're 25 or 26 years old for your brain to fully develop. Right. You know, when I started sniffing cocaine at 15, drinking at 14, eating major hallucinogenics, and, and doing everything else, 
how I still act like a little kid at sometimes. I'm very immature in some ways, but, uh, you know, I had to surrender and say my way isn't working, and I needed to take the suggestions and guidance from the professionals, such as yourself and other people, and, and humble myself and be willing to change. As an addict, <clears throat> we're creatures of habit. It's so easy to gravitate back what's back to what we know. Well, that's with anything. Right. Everybody does a- anything, you know, but the hard thing is was walking through the fear and walking through wanting to change because I didn't understand my whole life revolved around drinking and drugs. And granted, I I had some fun times for a short time, then it became a job, then it became an addiction. But as an addict, we hold on to the fun times. Right. The Yeah, the, the, the days on the boat partying and drinking and having sex with the girl at two in the morning. Yeah, that lasted maybe once and then the girl didn't want anything to do with me because I threw up on her or whatever, you know. Um, well, that's that's human nature, that you forget the bad times and you only remember the good times. Well, you, you just hit the nail on the head because as an addict, we forget the pain. We forget that I stole mom's wallet and, and she was crying. We, we forget all the bad things we did. And once you can get sober and learn to work through that and, and clean your side of the street and, and make amends and move on, you know, things get better, but we forget that pain. I will never forget sitting in prison the second time for 13 and a half months. I will never forget my wife, who became my ex-wife in prison, bringing two of my kids to visit me every two weeks. I will never forget having to call home and have that 15-minute phone call before the phone shut off. I will never forget eating ramen noodles for a year straight. I I won't forget those things. You know, when we talk about um, what it's like to get well, um, we talk about, we need to think about all of those experiences that someone's been through and the recovery period and time that it requires to get, process all that, to get through the shame that lives inside for right. a very, very long time and to build, rebuild that confidence that and understanding that we are all good people. We are all good Absolutely. People. But the shame, guilt, remorse haunts an addict. You know, I still have my mind can drift and people have done me wrong I can go back to wanting to go open that gate and let the hounds of hell come out because I have a dark side and I will never forget that dark side because it's somewhere I don't want to get to but if I'm not staying grounded in my spirituality in my recovery that dark side will come out and say, well, you know, it might be a good idea to go do this and that. And you know how I get out of that? I tell on myself. I tell on myself. And I had a friend of mine show up in my house. I had some personal issues happen while I was in Florida. And a friend of mine showed up at my house at nine o'clock at night saying, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And she sat there for four hours with me. And it's because I told on myself because where my thoughts were going. And you know, being surrounded by the right people, good things happen. That's but right. it, it's, I'm overwhelmed right now, Kathleen, because this is, is so cunning, baffling, and powerful. There are so many variables, but we got to chisel away step by step. You were just telling me we got some more money in Illinois, and, and there are positive things happening, but everyone wants to focus on the negative. And, and I know how many 
friggin' people are dying, let's start talking about the people that are, are turning their lives around. Your son's a success now. Right. right. You know, <clears throat> I'm a success. We're doing this for the right reasons. There's a 23 million people worldwide that are clean and sober. We don't hear about those. No, and <clears throat> so now I work every day with folks who have turned themselves around and who are volunteering and giving back and have a view of the world that I live every day, that the world is a good place and we can be in a good space in that world and with people around us who believe that, who believe that every individual is worth a, a successful life. And I believe that with my heart and all my heart. And so sometimes families and parents will ask me, how can I prevent my child? What do I need to do? And schools will wonder, what is it? What's the, you know, the magic that prevents this from happening? Well, first of all, there is no magic, okay, because life happens. And like I said, there's genetics involved and there's predispositions. Yeah. But what you can do is you can teach your child to be resilient, to allow themselves to fail. And when it's safe, when you're a youngster, fail and come back. Yeah. And continue to get back up and keep moving forward. Um, yeah, you know, I had a, uh, a friend of mine when I did the TED Talk, a TEDx Talk, you can look that up, Tim Ryan, Naperville, Illinois, TEDx 2016, but his TED Talk was on failure, in letting kids fail, and it's okay. I can remember when I played baseball as a kid, if, if you didn't get first place, you didn't get a trophy, and that was okay. Right. You know, and, and everyone on the... They played everyone on the team. Whether you were the worst kid, everybody played. You know, you're going to the practices. We didn't say, oh, well, only the stars play. We we had camaraderie. We had all these things. And I'll go back to my dinner with Shannon last night. Afterwards, we went to La Chocolate and had some chocolate and coffee. And there was these two tables of kids. They, they're probably in high school, maybe college. Uh, one had four. One had three. And I said, Shannon, turn around and look. All they were doing was on their cell phones. On their phones, taking picture of their drink, taking picture of their snacks, and not talking. And, and text messaging. And turn these damn devices off. Monitor your children's or loved one's technology. Because that's where all of this starts and what's happening in the technology today. Um we're getting close to wrapping up here. I would like to thank my friend, Dr. Kathleen Burke, for, for coming on here. You know, you're not alone. We're out here to help. We're just a point of contact to, to get people on the right road. There There's some really good treatment centers out there. There's a lot of really bad ones. There's some great sober homes. There's some really bad ones. Do your research. Investigate, investigate, investigate. Talk to the clinicians. Talk to the therapist. Ask as many questions as you need to. Half of my day spent, I, I'm talking to parents. I'm asking, answering questions. And sometimes they're just so relieved to say, wow, nobody would listen to me. And, and, and that's what it's about. But if you need help, you can reach us, Amanda Recovery Foundation, www.amirf.org. Um, or Banyan Treatment Center, B-A-N-Y-A-N TreatmentCenter.com. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, Dr. Burke, for coming on our show. Thank uh, you. Absolutely. Let's kick the week off right with the radio show. This is Tim Ryan with the Man in Recovery Radio, taking you from dope to hope. We will see you next week. Have a blessed day.
This has been a Man in Recovery Radio from Dope to Hope. Please join Tim Ryan again next Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for another edition of our program. And remember, there is always a future, always hope.